Oh, I love that. What's opera doc art behind you. Thank you uh, for your time and, uh, and chatting with me. Um, I, I'm so excited to, uh, to have this conversation with you. I have, you know, you're kind of like my, uh, <laughs> my Moby Dick. I've always been trying to connect with you, uh, through a couple of different ways. And I had on Dan Romanelli last year and he goes, Oh my God. Yes. He goes, Oh, you know who you need to talk to? Uh, <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. Dan, Dan Romanelli was, um, our fairy godfather. He was the one who, uh, started this whole, you know, after I had the idea and pitched it to him, he was the one that, that came forth with all of the Warner Brothers support, which um, uh, absolutely um, got us going. So there would not have been any Bugs Bunny on Broadway, which was our first show, or Bugs Bunny at the Symphony um, without Dan Romanelli. Wow, I love that. I mean, his legacy just, you know, piles on and piles on and every everything that he's touched within the franchise just shines and has a legacy to it and, and continues to this day. And I, I just love talking to him about it. Well, and it's so funny because when we first went there um, to pitch the meeting mm -hmm. um, for this concert project, there were only four um, people who worked in back then it was called LCA licensing corporation of America. And it was Dan and three other people. And they all shared one secretary whose name was blossom. Uh, now we now no one's called secretaries anymore, but she was really a secretary. I mean, she was, she'd been around since, you know, the Warner brothers <laughs> themselves. And so, you know, wow, it's gone from, you know, basically four people to, you know, 10,000 employees just in the licensing area. And, and now they call it um, uh, yeah, Warner Brothers Consumer Products as well as um, Global Featured Entertainment. So it's it's just gigantic. And, you know, he started all of that. He did. He did. Uh, you know, what a legacy that he's lived and and contributed to the art of animation and continuing the legacy of Carl Starling, which is what we're here to talk about. Right. Let's get started. We're starting the year of the rabbit off with a bang as Bugs Bunny at the Symphony makes his Las Vegas debut this weekend. And I'm here with its creator and conductor, George Doherty, to talk about the legacy of Carl Starling and his work that brought these vintage cartoons to life. So, of course, you realize this means podcast. Are you ready, eager young space cadets? <laughs> Where's the kaboom? There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. Hello and welcome to Of Course You Realize This Means Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Graves, and with me today, it is an honor and privilege to have on conductor and creator and director, George Doherty, and just talking about the legacy of music within Looney Tunes is such a near and dear topic to me, and I know him as well, and I just can't wait to dive in. So, George, how are you doing? And congratulations on 33 years of Bugs Bunny at the Symphony. Yes, and we're nearing, we're actually nearing 34, which is, uh, which is crazy. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's been quite a, a, an incredible wild roller coaster ride, and, and, um, when I thought up this project in 1989, wow, 
I thought I would do it for a couple of years and um, then return to my ultra serious ballet and opera conducting <laughs> career in, in Europe that I'd been doing and, and with symphony orchestras all over the place here in the US. But but um, <clears throat> here we are in 2023 and we're about to launch another gigantic um, now international tour as well as um, our performances this coming weekend in Las Vegas, which are all but sold out at this moment. Um, so Adele is not the only one who is having a, a sold out residency in, uh, in Las Vegas right now. Bugs Bunny is too. <laughs> and he joins good company with uh, Elvis, you know, having his Elvis, in right. Las Vegas. And, you right. know, that's a really cool thing to, to bring to Looney Tunes and continuing the legacy of traveling with these iconic pieces of music that people know because they watch the cartoons and they grew up with them. What's it like going from, you know, city to city, but also internationally and seeing the reactions from fans whenever you play these songs? Right behind you right now, I can see the Hollywood Bowl. Yes. And I know <laughs> I, I, I know where this, this comes from. Uh, is that from Tom and Jerry at the Hollywood Bowl? This, this is from Long Haired Hair. Oh, Long Haired Hair, yes. of course. Well, they all take place in the Hollywood Bowl. Yes. I And Long Haired Hair is currently part of our, um, uh, a part of our repertoire. Um, this is a beautiful still that you have of it. It, 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 it goes by really quick in the cartoon. So it does. that's with your, with, with your magnificent head in the way, I didn't quite re recognize which cartoon <laughs> it was from because the Hollywood Bowl appears so many times, but we've done the concert, you know, 22 times at the Hollywood Bowl with the Los Angeles Philharmonic over the years. And um, of course we've done it from every place from, well, virtually every medium and American symphony orchestra and Canadian symphony orchestra, we've, we've played there multiple times, eight sold out shows with the New York Philharmonic, you know, Boston Pops, Philadelphia Orchestra, San Francisco Symphony, and then, you know, all over the world, the Sydney Opera House over and over again. We're going back to Australia um, this spring. Um, the Royal Festival Hall in London with the Royal Festival. Um, wow. Uh, the, the, the Royal um, Philharmonic Orchestra, the RPO. Um, <laughs> Ten sold-out performances in the Kremlin Palace. Um, the in Kremlin. Moscow, with, which was has a capacity of about 5,000 people per concert. So that was like 50,000 people um <laughs> that saw it in moscow and, and we went to moscow right when it was um reopening right after the wall came down oh, so wow. it was crazy so we calculate that we've played to over um 250 orchestras many of them many times over and about 2.5 million people and um that's incredible well, it is incredible. And um, for those of your audience who might not know how this all works, of course, we're not just playing the music because that was that was actually my 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 first impetus was that, well, like everybody, I fell in love with this music when I was a little kid sitting on the living room floor watching the um cartoons on Saturday morning. And Same. and right, but in, in my era, I I'm I'm probably at least 20 or 30 years older than you are. <laughs> yes. 
but you know, it was green shag carpeting in Indiana with you know uh, russet orange uh, appliances in the kitchen and eating a lot of sugary cereal and gluten, um, which really got us ready for these cartoons. But I was absolutely mesmerized and blown away by the music when I was a little kid. Um, back in those days, in the early '60s, you know, the, when you turned on the TV, it took like um, a minute and a half for the picture to warm up, but you could hear the audio immediately. And I could always find these cartoons by the music. And um, so I, I could tune the channel in just by hearing it. And um, so I was in love with this music. And so I then grew up to study music. I was studying piano. I was studying cello. I went to music school. I'd, you know, like everybody else, I sort of drifted away from them. And you also have to remember that in those days, there wasn't an internet that we didn't have, you know, digital devices. We didn't have um, HBO Max or, or, or YouTube or anything. Sure. And so these cartoons sort of left my, you know, my hemisphere for a couple of decades. And then when I was in my 20s, I was reintroduced to these cartoons. I was working on an animation score with some wonderful animators. And remembering also that this was like in the late late 80s when there wasn't even home video yet barely yeah and so you know the ability to see these cartoons was pretty rare and unless you got up on saturday morning which i didn't because i'd been conducting swan lake until midnight the night on friday night <laughs> so um i rediscovered this music and i re i rediscovered the carl stalling music and um I was just absolutely mesmerized again. And um, I decided I had to conduct this music. And this clock is really making a lot of noise, isn't it? So you it's, know, okay. it's a little chime in the background. I like I it. Can, I can turn it <laughs> off if you want. But anyway, I, um, I completely um, fell in love with Carl Stalling again. And then made the discovery, of course, that... Um, that uh, Milt Franklin was an equal partner in many ways because he really took over at a certain point when Carl retired. And um, so he did a lot of the things that we always, that I always just sort of attributed to Carl Stalling. So, cause like Milt Franklin did, you know, what's opera doc? Be very quiet. I'm hunting rabbits. Um, um, yes. And, and not Carl Stalling. And so I decided that I had to conduct this music, but I very quickly realized that you had to see the cartoons while you hear the music. You can't just hear the music mm -hmm. as masterful and, and, and such a genius as Carl Stalling was. So much of his genius was the way the music works with the animation, as you well know already. And so it became clear to me, if I'm going to do this in concert, we have to show the cartoons. So that was a very long preamble to get to where I was going to tell your audience that when you come to see this concert, you see a big screen above the orchestra and you actually see all the cartoons while the orchestra plays the music, the original Carl Stalling and Milt Franklin scores live. Wonderful. The voices and the sound effects are still on the on the original cartoons, so they're you know, we're racing to keep up with <laughs> the whole thing for, for, you know, two hours and 15 minutes. But that's the genius of 
this material, and it was the genius of Stallings' compositional skills. And also when you add into it Treg Brown, yes. who did all the sound effects, then of course you add into it what every director brought to it, whether it was Chuck Jones or 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 Frizz Freeling or Bob Clampett or Robert McKimson or um, you know, Tex Avery, the whole gang. Um it was a dream team that they had back then. Absolutely. And they made things of such brilliance that, you know, it's that that's why we're still selling out concerts, you know, all over the world with this material. That's a wonderful segue into doing a deep dive into the history, but also, you know, the parts of it that we can dissect and the parts that excite you as a composer and a conductor yourself. Um, so Milt Franklin and Carl Starling, who you mentioned, alongside the resident WB orchestra that can compose hundreds of film scores, brought to life what we know as Merry Melodies and the Looney Tunes, giving operatic grandeur to the feel of those cartoons. Looney Tunes wouldn't feel the same without it. Where does the magic come from? Is it in the sheet music or was it in the nature of the work that lent itself to pairing so well with that orchestral sound? Well, the magic comes from, I think, a couple of, more than a couple. It comes from a number of, of areas. Because, first of all, for the animated shorts, Warner Brothers was the only studio, pretty much. Disney did for a little while, but didn't last very long at all. Yeah, Warner Brothers was the only studio that used the full Warner Brothers symphony for all of the Merry Melodies and the Looney Tunes. So the orchestra that was recording these scores um, was the same orchestra that was recording Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon and this. Voyager and all the other, you know, the gigantic, huge Warner Brothers epics that were being um, produced then. Mm -hmm. And so part of the magic was in, the, you know, this huge orchestra. So, you know, when we have 80 musicians on stage, that's the way it was it was done back then um and you know it was done that way for over I, I i i forget the exact number but it's about 80 800 it's about 800 cartoons wow. and every one of them had an absolutely separate and totally um distinct musical score they didn't recycle anything they didn't like chop up of their scores and 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 create new scores every single score was composed and um and was created for that cartoon. So you can really trace sort of the entire history of musical performance in America by listening to, you know, the cartoons from, you know, around a little before 1930 to all the way to when they stopped doing them in, you know, the early 60s. Yeah. Uh, I love that uniqueness. I love that you can turn yeah. on a Looney Tune cartoon and like it sound incredibly different than everything else in the catalog that you might run across. And I think it just adds to the complexity and the brilliance of those composers and those teams back then. Uh, you were mentioning right. like Chuck Jones and he had his own team and um, you actually got to work with him a little bit before uh, a his lot, passing. A, a lot. I a got lot to work with him a lot. I, wow. I worked I worked with Chuck for 10 years um, or ab about before he uh, passed away. He was really on the scene with us. I actually got to score three cartoons that he animated in the late nineties um, that he came back to Warner brothers and did a few new cartoons. So I did one froggy evening, superior duck. And 
I can't remember. Uh, uh, From uh, Hair uh, to uh, Eternity? No, uh, it was Wile E. Coyote. Oh, um, Chariots of Fur. Chariots of Fur. Chariots of Fur. Yes. And, um, but he would come to our concerts and he would sit on stage with us and, and, and with the orchestra and me on, you know, in performances. And, and he would always say, you know, this is so fantastic because previous to this, I was the only one who ever got to hear it like this because he would be the only one on the soundstage on the, in the recording stage when the orchestra and Carl Stalling or Mel Franklin were recording the scores, it was just be the director who was there. So Chuck, and I suppose Tread Brown was there probably too. And some other people from the unit, but I mean, it was a very tiny audience. And I often, you know, marvel and consider myself so lucky because Carl Stalling only got to conduct his cartoons one time. He only got to conduct Rabbit of Seville one time, Long Haired Hair one time. Uh, you know, Mill Franklin only got to conduct uh, What's Opera Doc one time. I've done them thousands of times at by this time. And that I, I feel so lucky to be so intimately acquainted with the music. That's amazing. But, you know, the part of the genesis of this whole thing was that the Warner Brothers themselves had a vast and gigantic popular music catalog. And so they were trying to figure out a way to push their songs, their sheet music, because they also had a really big business in selling sheet music to consumers who had a piano in their house. And so when you hear, you know, we're in the money or um, hello, my baby, or, um, you know, all of those songs, those were all from the Warner Brothers catalog. And so okay. these cartoons were originally uh, sort of a MTV, uh, <laughs> very primitively. Um, you, you know, they really were sort of a commercial venture to to push the songs. Then Carl Stallings started sneaking in more, more and more classical music. So, you know, in the Tex Avery cartoons, you don't see so much. Of, I mean, there are little classical references, but there aren't these huge epic things. Right, right. But really with, you know, Bob Clampett, with um, and with Frizz Freeling, Corny Concerto, with Rhapsody Rabbit. With, Corny Concerto was was Clampett. Rhapsody Rabbit was, um, was Freeling. And then Chuck got in on it with so many. <laughs> so the Rabbit of Seville being you know, absolutely iconic. What's Opera Doc being iconic? Long-haired hair, which you're sitting right in front of the background being so iconic. Um, I mean, long-haired hair has everything from, it has Rossini, many quotes of the Barber of Seville um, and the famous aria Largo al Factotum. It has um, Lucia de Lammermoor, the sextet by Donizetti. It has Wagner, the prelude to act three of Lohengrin. It has the a totally obscure piece of music that really hasn't hardly been heard anywhere called uh, the Overture to um, um, the Beautiful Galatea by, by um, uh, Von Suppé. I mean, it's just filled with stuff. Um, so like, you know, in the first 20 minutes of our concert, in addition to Carl Stalling, you know, you hear Wagner, Tchaikovsky, Franz Liszt, um, Smatina von Suppe, uh, Donizetti, 
um, Rossini, on and on and on and on. Mm. And uh, the magic is where Carl Stalling, especially when he started, was able to morph from his own music into these great classical pieces then come back out of them. But yet, when you listen to The Rabbit of Seville, The Rabbit of Seville is a totally Rossini-esque size orchestra. He would keep to the original musical qualities of the musical the, the music that he was parod parodying mm -hmm. parodying parody parody parodying yeah yeah <laughs> It's very accurate musically. Um, Mel Franklin did the same thing with What's Opera Doc. It's a Wagnerian size orchestra. And it's really funny. Um, Chuck Jones was such an expert on music, and he was a huge fan of opera and such a huge fan of classical music that he had written out on a piece of animation paper with a animation pencil the exact order of the music that he wanted in What's Opera Doc. Wow. And it starts with the, uh, oh, which are the Flying Dutchman. And then, you know, it, it, it morphs very quickly into Kill the Wabbit, which is the Ride of the Valkyries. Kill the Wabbit, Kill the Wabbit, Kill the Wabbit. Kill the Wabbit. From uh, Die Valkyra. The Overture to Rienzi, which is a completely, totally obscure Wagner opera that most Wagner Wagner opera fans have never heard. So it's just a masterpiece. And it really is. The musical score came down exactly like Chuck had written out in in Crayon. Um that's how organized they were. Um, and the first thing that would happen was that they would all get together. So, you know, let's say for Rabbit of Seville, you know, Carl Stalling, well, Chuck Jones, Carl Stalling, Craig Brown, the sound effects guy, um, they would all get together and they would plot out the cartoon on a piece of staff of musical staff paper. So the very first incarnation of any cart of any Looney Tune or any Mary Melodies cartoon was actually music, was a musical sheet that had measures and counts. Wow. And everything was um, created rhythmically around what that was going to be. You it, can tell. It's called, bar, it's called a bar sheet. And that's, we have a bunch of them um, that, that um, we have a bunch of them that, um, you know, survived. And it's just miraculous to look at them. Because from the very beginning, they're plotting out. Um, and that's why things work work so brilliantly is because from the very beginning, they were plotting out um, how sound effects and how music would work. The, the sound effects and the music and the Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies are practically indistinguishable from each other. And the orchestra makes a lot of sound effects themselves. Mm -hmm. and But a lot of the sound effects are are right on the music. So when the coyote gets, you know, cracked on the head by the acme um anvil there's a huge musical hit there's a huge sound effects hit and they're all together 
So their their pre-planning and their pre-production, their coordination was where so much of the magic occurred. Absolutely. Nothing left a chance. Today, today, you know, for cartoons, you know, a lot of cartoons today, um, you know, the sound sound effects guy covers everything, the composer covers everything, the dialogue covers everything, and then they go in and they all battle it out in the final mix. And um Back then, everything was just absolutely meticulously planned from the very beginning. That's incredible to know and to just like hear you like wax poetically about how everything came together and for the magic to come through on the sheet before they even start, you know, pencil to paper drawing the characters. That is yeah. that is incredible. And I would love to see one of those pieces, you oh. know, um, in person. I, I just I would lose my mind. That was their genius was their their ability to um, collaborate in the way they did. And that's what gives the Warner Brothers cartoons this absolutely distinctive sound that um, is just instantly recognizable. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it just didn't happen anywhere else like that. Exactly. And I think that's what separates it and makes it even more powerful when you, when you rewatch them as adults. Um, but you mentioned that current cartoons are being made uh, where they cover everything, but they don't necessarily meticulously go through it for the rhythms and and the beats. But uh, with the retro series of Looney Tunes cartoons, you have Joshua Moser and Carl Johnson under the guidance of Pete Browngard and Sam Register. Who now I, I wasn't talking about Carl and those guys. Well, I said that <laughs> I wasn't because the these new cartoons have been done meticulously, also and Amazing. totally yes. totally in the tradition of the Looney Tunes. So I was, I wasn't talking about them when I was saying that I was talking about <laughs> other studios that, sure. you know, I, or I, I, yeah. motion pictures in general. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I wasn't throwing them under the bus at all. I love their work. And uh, you, right. I was also going to mention that you have also uh, conducted their scores in your well, show. We have two of them in the concert right now, two of Carl Johnson's. Amazing. Uh, we have um, uh, wet cement and then we have, um, um, Dynamite Dance, which is our, our big encore. Okay. Now, Dynamite Dance is done to the uh, dance of the hours from the opera La Gioconda, from a, you know, a 19th century Verismo opera. Also, um, one other person who deserves a lot of credit is Christopher Leonard's who who um, scored the the 3D Looney Tunes, but we have um, Fur Flying, <laughs> Coyote Falls, and um, and I forget what the third one is. I'll think of it in a minute. But anyway, he's also done a, an amazing job of of following the traditions. I love that, and I you know you're just adding to the legacy through you know this show, and I love that you're bringing it to a new audience in Vegas. And I just wanted to, you know, thank you for putting it out there and continuing on the legacy. And it's, you know, important that these cartoons are shown in this way because they were originally in theaters and we're not getting that, you know, currently. And uh, it's, it's magical to watch them with an audience. And I love the fact that you, well, you have, have to that remember, going. You have to remember that there were four very distinct components to every soundtrack. Um, so music dialogue 
<laughs> there was a sound effect. <laughs> Dialogue. <laughs> sound effects. And then audience. The audience is the fourth component of this of of the soundscape. Yes. And it suddenly all makes sense when you hear it with an audience of two or three thousand people, because we all have to remember that these cartoons were shown in movie theaters first before they were ever seen on television. So they were timed for a live audience. They were timed for audience reaction. They were timed for applause. They were timed for laughter. They were timed for all of that. And um, it just totally makes sense when you finally hear it with a live audience because you can see that those little pauses that, you know, were once there that, you know, they weren't irritating, but they were there suddenly are filled up by what they were intended to be filled up with, which is audience reaction. Yeah. And um, one of the other things that's so amazing about, so when we first started this concert, you were talking about Dan Romanelli a little bit and uh, a little bit ago in our, sure. in our pre-pro. Friend of the and, podcast, uh, Dan Romanelli. <laughs> right. Right. And I mean, Dan is our hero because if it wasn't for Dan Romanelli, we would not have, um, we, we never would have, started this project he believed in this from the very beginning but we only had like three cartoons done for the very first version of of this concert because back in 1989 it's before there were max it was before there was programs like were programs like finale or sibelius or or you know any of the 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 great audio programs that exist now we had to actually separate the music away from the dialogue and the sound effects, all that Warner Brothers had archived were the original single, they're called, it was called single stripe mag. Wow. It was a, or 35 millimeter, single stripe mono compilation of music, sound effects and voice. There were no separations at all. So we had to physically separate out the music away from the dialogue and the sound effects so we could actually play them in concert because you can't have the orchestra playing the scores if if um you know you still have the music on the original tracks and that was very laborious back in 1989 it took us forever to to do that and also a lot of most of the scores had not been saved um really and especially the great ones What's Opera Doc had not been saved. Rabbit of Seville had not been saved. Long-haired hair had not been saved. Um, the only ones that really had been saved that we do were Baton Bunny had been saved okay. for some reason. Um, High Note had been saved. And that was it. Everything really? else. Yeah. Everything else, we had about 16 people sitting with headphones transcribing note by note the original scoring wow and that is insane so when we first started we only had three cartoons we had baton bunny rabbit of Seville. we had four baton bunny rabbit of Seville, what's opera doc and high note that's all that's okay. what we had and we filled the rest of the concert in with sympathetic music sympathetic concert music <laughs> so you know we did a lot of wagner we did the ride of the valkyries we did all that stuff we did all the music that was in the cartoons and then we would do the four cartoons Technology got a lot better mm -hmm. and quicker with every passing year. And now we have 28 cartoons prepared for live performance. 
so we we laughingly and and jokingly refer to ourselves as the only cartoon repertory company <laughs> in the world. We can constantly switch up the the cartoons and and do slightly. You know, we always do what's opera duck. We always do rabbit of Seville. We always do um, long um, baton bunny. Um, because the audiences would riot if we didn't. And, you know, people are singing along. People sure. are, are shouting out the lines. You know, I love that. I, I love the title of your podcast because I know exactly where it comes from. <laughs> exactly in the moment of long haired hair. <laughs> you know, of course, this, this means war. Yes. And the audience always cheers. <laughs> that moment. So as fans, do we have to thank you for the whole restoration movement of Looney Tunes getting these restored uh, versions on DVD and like, you know, the, the re retiming of everything and the, the music being added back? Did you start that whole thing? For the Warren Brothers to see that there's actual value in doing that? Contrary to what you might think, I'm a, a very modest person. And there were a lot of people who were behind the movement to give Carl Stalling and Milt Franklin their... And the same year we did the very first um, performances of Bugs Bunny on Broadway. Our original show was called Bugs Bunny on Broadway. Originally, it was going to be called Bugs Bunny in Concert. Oh, okay. And then we, then we ended up going to Broadway. And this is how crazy it was. We had done one... Warner Brothers wanted to see how it was all going to work. First of all, we were the first film and orchestra live concert in history. We were the the first thing. And orchestras wow. in 1989 thought we were nuts. Like, what? People are going to come and watch a symphony orchestra concert with a screen hanging above the orchestra, watch a movie or watch cartoons or what? You know, never going to happen. Never going to happen. But Dan Romanelli was so behind us and we were so passionate about what we were doing. And so they decided we would do a test performance in San Diego. Okay. And um, so we did one performance in San Diego with the four cartoons and all the concert stuff. And a couple of things happened. Number one, there was a full page ad on us in the Sunday San Diego newspaper. That was back in the days when there were still Sunday newspapers. Yes. <laughs> and the show sold out in a matter of hours, like 3000 tickets in a matter of hours. So this was the first hint that we have something here. Secondly, when we saw the audience on the one test performance, when we saw the audience on the on the one test performance, we it, it was almost 100% adults. Wow. Barely a kid. I mean, our 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 concert is very multi-generational. Multi it's great for kids. It's great for um families it's great yeah. for we grandparents their kids their kids and their kids but this is not a kids show you know and as you well know the looney tunes are not for kids right specifically they were for um everybody and um mckimson has been quoted many times saying they are for adults usually uh but and you know they work for everybody and chuck jones also mm -hmm. chuck chuck was the one that um would say I didn't make these for kids, you know. It's like, like, <laughs> but you know, the, the very funny thing was that um, we, I, from thirty-three and a half years of doing this, the pattern of laughter is the same everywhere in the world. Um, whether we're in China, where we have been, and where we're going back to ten cities, um, 
or other countries where English is not the, the first language, um, the laughter always appears. We I hear three distinct kinds of laughter. I hear the laughter coming from kids. I hear the laughter coming from adults at the double entendres, the stuff that the kids don't get. Then I hear the laughter just coming from everybody. And it's the same everywhere in the world. Um, it's so consistent. And, um, you know, it, it's that's part of the genius also. Um, so I I consider myself so lucky, but I, I consider that the, it's great for the audiences. But yeah, we were the first ones to, to restore these the music for these cartoons. Um, we are the only ones that, because it's never turned up. I always thought that over 30 years that the original conductor score for, for What's Opera Doc or The Rabbit of Seville or some of those would would turn up and they never have. Wow. Um, they're in somebody's garage somewhere. You know, I, 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 over the years, I've heard so many stories that, especially regarding like animation cells, mm -hmm. I would, I would hear, I've heard this story over and over again. Oh, we used to live next door to Frizz Freeling and he would bring us stacks of original animation cells. And then when we, when we moved, my mom throw, threw them all away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It makes you cringe when you think of not only the gallery prices of all those original animation cells, yes. but also it's the the lost. But what makes me proud of what we have done, circling back around to what you asked a moment ago, is that we have restored the actual printed music for, for these so people can see them and study them. And, you know, we, 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 we were very we were lucky to have the ones that we have. And it's it's very funny because there is a list of probably maybe 200 scores that were saved but they were mostly not as significant cartoons mm. out of the 800 so yeah. someone really walked away with the good stuff and you know <laughs> it's somewhere in, in the world it, but it, it hasn't showed up in in 33 years but by looking at what he did for other cartoons even if they weren't you know, perfect for our concert, we were able to figure out how he did things. The whole invention of the click track system. Um, oh, what's that? If you could explain to the listeners. Well, okay. So to this day, every, every, okay. The simplest way to explain the click track is that when movies got sound. So if you, anyone's ever seen singing in the rain, you know how that <laughs> happened. Um, there had to be a way to coordinate music and the film itself. So the music would all end up in the right place. It's especially urgent in Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies because the synchronization is so incredibly tight. So it was Carl Stalling who came up with this idea of a click track. Mm. So it's a it's like a metronome beat that you hear in headphones like you're wearing, only you, you only have one side. You'll see it when you see the concert um, this weekend. Okay. Uh, there's only one side to the headphone so that you can hear the click track with one ear and you hear the orchestra and and the players hear themselves out of the other ear the click track is is made first it, it that was the second thing that happened after the bar sheets were made is that a click track would be made by carl stalling and and everything would be plotted out so that's how the music stays in synchronization with the picture wow and that's cool this is a technique that is still used to this day for every piece of film music that you hear anywhere. And it was Carl Stalling who invented this. He, wow. he, he changed the, the 
the film world because they were having tremendous problems syncing everything up. This is a demonstration of a talking picture. Notice, it is a picture of me and I am talking. Note how my lips and the sounds issuing from them are synchronized together in perfect unison. And, um, you know, they would try to do streamers and punches right on the film. They would take grease pencil and make squiggles on the film so the conductor would sort of know what he, where, where, where he was at, things like that. But the click track ended up being the answer to everything. So we do the whole con concert with the click track, and we have a lot of Carl Stallings' original click tracks. And so wow, the way it all, because we have to we have to keep up with these cartoons for two hours and 15 minutes with a live orchestra on stage. Sure. And people like you and other fans and other experts who know these cartoons so well would know in a second, if we weren't together with the sound effects and the, um, and the dialogue. And of course the dialogue, you know, I haven't said anything about either Mel Blanc or uh, Mel Blanc or Arthur Q. Bryant, but, um, and so many people don't know that, you know, Mel Blanc never did Elmer Fudd, except for a very, very few times at the very end of his career. But Elmer Fudd was done by an incredible old character actor named um, Arthur Q. Bryant. And Arthur Q. Bryant had like the worst agent in Hollywood. So Arthur Q. Bryant never got a screen credit once ever. And <laughs> Mel Blanc got a screen credit on cartoons where he didn't even speak. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Mel Blanc was a genius. I mean, they call him the man of a thousand voices, but he was really the man of a 999 because it it, it was Arthur Q. Bryant that did that did Elmer Fudd. So when they're singing um, the duet, the love duet in What's Opera Doc, Retoin my love, it's right after Bugs comes down on this horse, which is right behind me. They were actually, you know, it was two pot-bellied 58-year-old men singing Wagner to each other in a recording studio. You know, they were actually <laughs> singing together. That's another thing that makes it so magic is the is the voices. And, you know, the the female voices were mostly done by B. Benaderet and, and the great June Foray. June Foray was a really good friend of ours and appeared on stage with us many times. And of oh. course, away from Warner Brothers, she also did Rocky and um and Natasha and um she was just an icon also today yes. it takes like it basically takes like you know 16 people to do what mel blank basically did by himself um absolutely and one of the other things that i really love about the whole thing is that jack warner had you know one of these cartoons done for a kind of low budget i mean they didn't have mm -hmm. you know there's a hysterically famous story about chuck jones who wanted more production money and more stuff for What's Opera Doc. So for like an entire year before, he um, did a little bit less on every other cartoon. So he would have a, a sort of a war chest built up that he could use on What's Opera Doc. And, oh, wow. <laughs> and so What's Opera Doc has more backgrounds, has more, you know, really animation than, you know, anything else that he ever did. But... Um, the, they had to work with really small budgets and, you know, they were, you know, in the place called termite terrace, which was named aptly, it, you know, yeah. it, it had termites in it. And so, <laughs> um, 
Jack Warner and Leon Schlesinger, who was the producer, were very money conscious. And um, one of my favorite things about all this is that the recording sessions were never scheduled. For... I was actually going to ask you about this rumor. Yeah, so it's, it's it's real. It's totally real. The, <laughs> the, the recording sessions were never scheduled. Um, they would suddenly have 15 minutes at the end of a Casablanca session or another session. And the phone would ring and, and Carl Stalling and Milt Franklin and, you know, everyone. Yes, they, they would come running across the lot with music flying and they'd throw it down. And, and the, the musicians would, would, would record these scores very, very quickly. And I, I think that that is what gives the original recordings this sort of very effective sound of sort of abject terror because the musicians <laughs> were, were literally like hanging on to their seats yeah to, to play all this stuff it uh, speeds by too like there it has a rhythm but it's also you know like let's get these sounds in and get out <laughs> as quick yeah well as they possible. didn't have much time and yeah. um, you know they actually recorded them in cues so so let's just take um long-haired hair for example it has about seven different cues it's divided up into seven different parts and they would just record one part at a time rehearse mm -hmm. rehearse rehearse record and then move on to part two, rehearse, 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 record, move on to part three, et cetera. Um, our orchestras for the concert don't have that luxury. They have to play everything from beginning to end in one fell swoop. And they do, you know, 17 or 18 of them in one night. So um, it's a lot. It's a real workout. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, we always say that, you know, there's no slow movements in Looney Tunes, uh, which there aren't. So, um, but that was another thing that was just, you know, th there was a real edginess to the original recordings that I think came from just having to like hold on to your seats and, and play it quickly. Yeah. And you have to remember that there were more symphony orchestras in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s than in any other city in the world because every single studio had their own full-time orchestra and of 70, 80 musicians, mm -hmm. and they did not overlap. So the MGM orchestra was the MGM orchestra, Paramount orchestra, you know, Universal orchestra, um, 20th Century Fox orchestra, which was legendary. The concert master of the um, 20th Century Fox orchestra was the great conductor, Leonard Slatkin, who is one of the greatest conductors today. It was his father, Felix Slatkin, and his mother oh. was the principal cellist at Warner Brothers. She was the first female principal musician in any, any Hollywood orchestra. The level of musicians in Hollywood at this time were stupendous because yeah. they, so many of them had come from Europe to escape World War II. And um, so the playing was just unbelievable back then. And, you know, you just hear things that you just don't hear to, attention to detail that you don't. So all the detail was lavished on the live action films um yeah you know, but the cartoons had to be done very quickly but still there was a there was an overflow from what they already knew and what they did for all these other films that um you know they used in the cartoons so they were really raring to go always so, so it, according to mel uh he said that it took them about eight months to you know uh a full year to get one of these cartoons completely done from, you know, the story process to the animation and, and getting it out in theaters. And Carl Stalling 
composed or not composed, but like conducted the orchestra and put the music to the visuals in a week. So like that, that's just an insane workflow that I just can't wrap my head around. (laughs) Right. But But, it's, it's phenomenal. I love it. But you always, you, you also have to remember that as you, as you were saying earlier on, every director had his own animation unit. Yeah. So at, at one time, there were a, there was a time that where there were five directors there all at the same time. So when there was a time when Chuck Frizz, Robert McKimson, Bob Clampett, Tex Avery, when they were all there at the same time. So there would be five different cartoons in process. In and even though it took a year for one cartoon, even Chuck would be working on maybe four cartoons a year. So they were st- everything was staggered. Okay. So when they were they were finishing up one they'd already started another and there were a couple others in the middle so but they had their own animation units their own animators their own ink and painters but carl stalling was doing the music for everything yeah so you know he would he was legendary in his ability to compose quickly and so was mill franklin you know mill franklin's nothing you know he I've come to really, you know, Carl gets so much of the credit and, and, and justifiably so. I mean, he invented the whole genre of animation music. Um, wow. But Mill Franklin, for a lot of Carl Stalling cartoons, was the orchestrator. And so they were working together on a lot of stuff. And um, so, and actually on, on the great cartoon Zoom and Board, which we do in our concert, which is, you know, one of the great Roadrunner cartoons of all time i mean from the musical aspect it's my favorite roadrunner cartoon that and there they go 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 they're both sort of equal and their brilliance of musicality but um they both got credit together on zoom and board so that's music by carl stalling and milt franklin They both had really amazing backgrounds. Uh, Carl Stalling grew up in Lexington, uh, Missouri, which was all the way in the very north part of the state of Missouri. And by the time he was like 12 years old, he was playing the piano yeah. in the local silent movie theater. When, he was a prodigy. Yeah, before before movies had sound. You know, he was composing on site. Uh, he was improvising, <laughs> composing as a, as a 12-year-old. <laughs> And then when he then he went to Kansas City and St. Louis, and um, it's amazing because we 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 go and play with the St. Louis Symphony quite frequently, and we're playing the Powell Hall, which is the home of this. It's the concert hall of the of the St. Louis Symphony now. Is was the St. Louis movie theater, the St. Louis theater, where Carl Stalling was the resident organist. So it's like we're it's like being in. Bayreuth, which is Wagner's home theater in, you know, Germany, you know, this is where Carl Stalling did his thing and all, and then at the, um, yeah, in Kansas City also, and of course, in Kansas City is where Carl Stalling met Walt Disney. Yeah, and, it's holy ground for animation uh, and, fans. <laughs> right, and so, and, you know, Ubi uh, I, Iwerks, and, Iwerks, yeah. mm-hmm. I, Iwerks, I don't remember how to pronounce his name. I mean, that was like, you're right, hallowed ground, and they all ended up in Hollywood. And then Carl very quickly ended up at Dis- uh, going from Disney 
to Warner Brothers. So, and he stayed there, which was, you know, fantastic for all of us. But he was a <laughs> trained musician. Yeah. Um, Milt Franklin was a virtuoso woodwind player mm. and he could play all of the all of the woodwind instruments brilliantly so flute oboe clarinet bassoon bass clarinet everything wow. and that is why the woodwind writing for these cartoons is so absolutely brilliant and as we hear the rhythmic twains of the haunting weep wane Listen to the whip-wing rhythm of the woodwinds as it rolls a wound and a wound and it comes out here. Zoom and board. Just okay. be aware during zoom and board that, <laughs> that of what the woodwinds are doing. Okay. I'll definitely make notes. The, ex the extended bassoon solos where nothing is playing but this bassoon. When Wiley e. Coyote is going up that long stairway to the top of that peak, the bassoon is just doing da dee 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 And then the next thing you hear, just the bass clarinet. the entire section it's harder than you could imagine i mean musicians from the new york philharmonic are saying my god this is this is harder than the right of spring you know <laughs> but they love it they love it because it was written by you know and arranged by a real woodwind player who knew how to write for the instruments on a more personal note what brings you the most joy while performing is it the audience interaction with the animation or the music accompanying it or both well there's three things oh so three things yeah, you you mentioned the first two. The the audience interaction is incredible. The playing and conducting the music is incredible. And I never get tired of it because it is so brilliant. It's like Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker because I'm also a ballet conductor. It's like I've conducted Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker a thousand times in my career over 40 years and I never get tired of it because it's so brilliant. This is exactly the same thing. I never get tired of this music because it is so incredibly brilliant. The third thing though, is watching and performing with these hard ass classical musicians who are having the best time of their lives playing this music. And I'm talking about, you know, the New York Philharmonic, the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Boston Pop, you know, and they're just loving it. And they and, and the reason they love it is kind of threefold. They love it because it's brilliantly done. They love it because of what is happening in that instant um, with the audience and with everything else. I mean, our audiences are crazy. And <laughs> it's like the Beatles are on, you know, when Bugs makes his entrance. Um, sure. But the third thing is that they're recapturing their own childhoods. And you can't believe as I look out into the orchestra, how many times I see musicians mouthing, oh, oh, Boonhilda, you're so lovely. Yes, I know it. I can't help it. I mean, they know the <laughs> words. The musicians know the words. That all brings me the joy. That's and, you know, I created this concert um, in partnership with my husband, um, David Wong, who is the co-creator with me, the technical director, 
he basically does everything else but conduct. I mean, he's the reason that we have incredible lighting, that the screen is gorgeous, that that everything works. I mean, this is no small feat because no. basically we're yeah. bringing we're bringing an entire movie studio, recording studio onto a stage which is not used to having all this stuff there. Um, you know, every musician has a little black box and their headphones and micro microphones and all, all of this stuff. It's really like, it's exactly like a live recording. It's exactly like what Carl Stalling was doing on the scoring stage. It's exactly the same. We Amazing. use all the same techniques. We use all the same kind of equipment. It's yeah, it's advanced technically, but the, the the mechanics are all exactly the same sure yeah you're bringing that so it's, old it's little, into the new it's a little scary i mean there, there there's a lot that could go wrong and yeah. it, you know hardly ever has anything gone wrong in 33 years because david is so brilliant at at his job and we have really great <laughs> sound and video people and stage hands and but but um there is a lot that could go wrong when you look at all this stuff up on an orchestra concert platform, that's not used to having it, but it, luckily it, it doesn't. <laughs> luckily it doesn't. And I, I hope that uh, it continues that trend and uh, that success for right. you, both of you. Thank you both for putting this on. Uh, I do have uh, two more questions to get through um, while I have you. One is Baton Bunny, Rhapsody Rabbit and a Corny Concerto and long-haired hair, all have the tunes playing instruments or conducting an orchestra themselves. Which do you find the most authentic and the most hysterical within those segments? Well, without fail. Now, okay, I, I'll give you I'll, I'll give you one comparison first. Okay. Um, of another conductor-type cartoon. Um, Tom and Jerry at the Hollywood Bowl. Okay. Tom is a terrible conductor. You look up at him and you have no idea what he's doing. I actually, we, we've had that cartoon, even though it's not a Looney Tune, we've had that cartoon in our show because it's a brilliant cartoon. Sure. It's a brilliant cartoon. But I cannot look at the screen and conduct at the same time or I will get totally screwed up because he's just doing that. <laughs> Bugs in Baton Bunny easily the orchestra could just look at the screen and I don't wouldn't even have to be there. Wow. All, all of Bugs's conducting patterns, three, four, one, everything. It's perfect. Chuck learned conductor's patterns and conductor's rhythm, conductor's technique, and Bugs you'll see what look at me and look at bugs we're doing the same exact thing so without fail bugs is conducting in baton money could lead any orchestra in the world it is <laughs> i now, love that i love that long-haired hair of course we get ha so you know that that's not quite you know perfect technique but it is sure. perfect for the cartoon the but octave range is yes <laughs> just uh, adding uh, to uh, it <laughs> that all the way down but it's become a real thing when we go to the philadelphia orchestra and we've done this a lot with the philadelphia orchestra and we actually toured with them last summer to uh the vale music festival at vale colorado 
because Bugs is playing Leopold Stokowski. Leopold! Leopold! Leopold, who was the iconic music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra for, you know, many, many decades. So when the whole orchestra is going, Leopold, 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 when Bugs comes out in the white wig, yes, the whole orchestra and the whole audience of Philadelphia, they're all screaming, Leopold, 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 Leopold. So that has a, a, a certain kind of realism to it. Now, Corny Concerto is a real favorite of mine because it is just so incredibly beautiful. As you, I'm sure, know, it was sort of a parody and a takeoff of Fantasia. Yes. So all of the backgrounds are this, you know, florid, gorgeous. You know, the trees are moving with the music and the gorgeous floral backgrounds. And and um, the way that Carl Stalling treated Johann Strauss's music is just amazing. It is so authentic. It is so real. It, it is just a total delight to 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 do it, and um, as the clock is dinging behind me, and um, <laughs> it's just perfect. Um, and then, of course, it has Elmer coming up in between sections, saying, "Listen to the whippling rhythm of the woodwinds," and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And um, of course, that's also a takeoff of uh, Stokowski, again, mm -hmm. who did the same thing in in Fantasia. And so um, I just love Corny Concerto. It is, for me, it is a break from all the chaos of, <laughs> of all the, the rest. So many of the cartoons are, it's brilliant chaos. It's brilliant, yeah, but it yep. is chaos, yep. especially from the conductor side. And <laughs> the, um, the three new Looney Tunes by Christopher Leonard's. Um, you know, Fur a Fly and Coyote Falls and Rabid Rider. Now I remember all three of them. Um, they're like the fastest things. They're, they're, they're as fast as the Quidditch game in Harry Potter. They're, <laughs> they're you know, it's just wow. your halves. So Corny Concerto just gives me this, the moment to just breathe and, and it is just so gorgeous. Rapsy Rabbit is very fun. We're we're not doing Rapsy Rabbit at the moment because it's it's currently um, uh, it's currently rotated out because we we keep rotating everything. Rapsy Rabbit is brilliant because of a couple of reasons. Number one, normally the music was recorded by Carl Stalling after the cartoon was animated, so it was post scoring, what we call post scoring, po after physical production and yeah. that's how most movies are done mm -hmm. um with rhapsody rabbit the track was laid down first
um, so the pianist was um, in the studio with the orchestra and Carl Stalling conducting, and they just did it wild with no click track. So um, we do it in concert. We don't have a click track for that, but we just have to, I'm literally following Bugs as the pianist the way I would follow a real pianist in a concerto in a, in a concert. That's impressive. Um, and the pianist was um, really, really brilliant who, who, who played it. And so, um, but here's the funny thing about their attention to detail, which is so amazing. Um, the original Liszt Hungarian Rhapsody is in C sharp minor. And so a lot of black keys. Um, so they recorded it and uh, what's up doc who france list never heard of him wrong number then they noticed that the animation for ease of animation had been done in c minor so once mm. quarter you know quarter step down half step down um so there would be less black keys because it was really hard to get the black keys animated as as opposed to the bigger white keys. Carl Stalling and the pianist were really flummoxed that um, the music and the picture didn't match in terms of tonality. So they went back in and re-recorded it one half step lower. So oh, wow. it would be in C minor instead of C sharp minor. So, um, <laughs> so they really took their work in incredibly seriously. That so actually I, answered my last question, which was, um, you know, getting more nerdy with it. Were there any musical Easter eggs within the way a character plays or conducts or or did Carl Starling ever sneak anything in that was like a musical like joke or something like oh, that? Oh, all the that, time, all the time. Yeah. And, and stuff that you can't even and, and, and sometimes you don't even notice them until you actually look at the cue sheets because they still oh, wow. can like <laughs> that from back then. And there'll be like two seconds of something. Um, that's like the end of the, of the rabbit of Seville, which is all Rossini. And then suddenly when Elmer and Bugs are standing in front of the wedding cake, they throw in Mendelssohn for mm. just, you know, two and a half seconds. Uh, <laughs> the, um, uh, the ride of the Valkyries theme is very present, of course, in what's opera doc, but it, it comes up in half of the other cartoons. Um, and just like uh, they were always just playing practical jokes on each other and but it was always done with such such brilliance you know the animators would also stick in a frame of something here and there that um later had to be cut out once video was invented and people had <laughs> slow motion or pause uh, i won't go any further into that but um chuck jones and frizz freeling had to fess up that there were a few single frames that <laughs> would need to be taken out before this was put out on video those pranksters <laughs> there was there was never a dull moment there but Absolutely. they were also incredibly competitive with each other they yeah. all wanted to be the funniest they all wanted to be the best they were friends but not that good of friends you know i was around chuck and frizz together a lot even when they were in the almost 90 and there was still even at that point this incredible competition with them wow that was just palpable 
Yeah. You could feel the electricity between the two of them. It added to the work. It added to, you know, the experience. Of well, it added to the work. brilliance because every yeah. cartoon, they tried to top the one that came before it. I love and that. that's what made it so brilliant. And, you know, they all stayed with animation. These, these weren't like people who did animation and then went on to like make bigger films. This was their world and they loved it so much. And that's, that's what translates to the audience. I mean, what, one of my favorite um, moments in, in, in concert, you ask about, you know, the audience is that here we are at the New York Philharmonic. Every single performance is sold out. Um, eight performances were sold out and they couldn't even, you know, thousands of people couldn't buy tickets because there weren't enough seats. They couldn't extend it any, anymore. And on the opening night in New York, in front of critics, in front of everybody. And then I'm, I turn around and I talk to the audience a few times during the concert and tell some of these stories and things. And I was suddenly aware, you know, I'm, the, I'm on the edge of the stage at, at Avery Fisher Hall, as it now it's called David Geffen Hall, um, right on the edge of the stage. And I was aware that somebody was moving back and forth right in front of me in the first row, literally four feet, three, not even four feet, three feet away from me. And I had the spotlight in my eyes, so I really couldn't see, but she was like actually getting into my spotlight. And I, I looked down and there was a mom who had brought her five kids and thinking, remembering that in New York, the front row was going for about $135 a seat. Um, she had brought her five kids in footy pajamas. And while I was talking, she was passing out cereal, bowl, cereal bowls. Then out came the Tupperware thing of cereal. And then she came back down the row again, got the Tupperware of milk and then handed them all a spoon. And she wanted them to have the experience of eating the cereal and watching the cartoons. And so I, I That's put it in parenting. I put it into my, I included her in, in my bit. And, you know, <laughs> that is exactly what it's all about. You know, for me is, is recreating these moments. And, you know, we live in a turbulent world and my God, after the last two to three years, it's, you know, a mess. And, you know, we were out, we were out for two and a half years. We, we missed Bugs's 80th birthday and everything. I know. Um, I was so sad. Yeah, me too. I was really sad, but you know, this year we have Warner Brothers' hundredth anniversary, yeah. so that's that's really good. But um, so this concert just lifts a lot of the world's you know woes off of everyone's shoulders for two and a half hours, two hours and fifteen minutes, and that's what makes me so happy about it. You know, well, speaking on behalf of all the fans out there, we are internally excited about seeing it back up there and grateful for you and David to bring it back. And, yep. um, you know, I can't wait to see it. And uh, I know people can buy tickets over at the Smith Center uh, currently. And um, if there are tour dates or anything that comes up, I'll gladly share them on the Great. Instagram. We have a we have an amazing year coming up. First of all, if you want to get tickets for this week, uh, just Google um, Bugs Bunny at the Symphony Las Vegas Philharmonic. Okay. And that, that will take your audience right to the to the uh, but also we have a great website bugsbunnyatthesymphony.com or bugsbunnyatthesymphony.net. And that has our tour schedule on it. It's about to be updated in one week. All of our new performances are going to be listed. They're not quite there yet. But in the next year, we're going to um, Australia. We're going to Mexico. We're coming back to LA. We're, um, we're going to perform at the uh, Rome Film Festival. 
in in yes in Rome. Um, and um, we're this summer we're going to perform with um, the L'Orchestre de la Suisse Romande, which is probably the finest orchestra in all of Europe at their gorgeous concert hall in Geneva, Switzerland. So you know when this all really comes together is that when we combine great cartoons with these world class venues, you know. And that's when it really, really works, um, yeah. because it's as someone has said, it's the best of highbrow meaning lowbrow, or, or but it's hard <laughs> to tell which is the lowbrow and which is actually the highbrow. But, um, you know, we're grateful to you because you know you really keep it alive too, and uh, that's what we all have to do. And now yeah, kids don't see do. on TV anymore. So the the cool thing is that um, so many of the kids that are come with their parents and their grandparents and everybody else are have never seen these cartoons before when we first started 33 years ago it was still on saturday morning it was still on every afternoon now it's yeah. not so we're introducing you know these whole new generations to these cartoons for the very first time and these kids just love it and their parents love it their grandparents love it i'm sure we have some of their great grandparents there and um, <laughs> the cross generational and uh, you know entertainment it's it totally multi-generational, and that's what Chuck wanted. That's what Frizz wanted, Bob Clampett, Robert McKimson, Tex Avery. They all That's what they all wanted. They were making these for everybody, and that's yeah. what we do. I love that. Arthur Davis as well. And, yes, uh, absolutely. You know, everybody. So, yeah, thank you again for your time and, and talking with us and, uh, you know, getting deep and nerdy into the music aspect of these cartoons, which I love so much. And as always... That's not all, folks. And find your tickets now because I'm sure it's going to sell out before you can say, what's up, Doc?